Welcome to the first ever edition of The Other Animals. I am Laurent Levy, your host on this adventure, and I'm absolutely thrilled to finally get this project on the air. First order of business, I have to absolutely thank Barry Reisman for all his help in making this happen, uh, answering all my otherwise dumb questions and seeing shepherding me through this process. Thank you, Barry. Uh, true Philadelphia treasure. So, what is this thing we're going to call The Other Animals? Well, it started about seven years ago when my wife and I were touring Barcelona and I happened upon the well-known Boqueria Marketplace. At one meat stall, piled seemingly as high as the ceiling, was the most remarkable collection of livers, flanks, loins, hearts, shanks, breasts, thighs, brains, tongues, you get the picture, that I had ever seen. None of it was under the neat shrink-wrapped cellophane packaging we are so used to, nor was any attempt made to disguise the shape color or function of the organs or of the animals from which they were extracted. Maybe it was the intactness and rawness of the whole display that struck me, but whatever it was, I was struck. I kept walking around the marketplace. Within minutes, I came upon a volunteer group trying to find homes for adorable puppies. I found a store selling rat poison. I saw gifts and artwork and jewelry depicting animals reverently, admiringly, or mockingly. I found a bookstore replete with children's books with pictures of kids and their animal sidekicks on the cover and books about why we should treat our pets with kindness and books about taking care of nature and wildlife right next to the adult section with books that celebrated the history of bullfighting and books that told you how to prepare lamb stew. I found a store selling insecticides. I found a fish market selling oysters and live lobsters tumbling over each other and squid and crab and all sorts of fish with their eyes and heads attached only a few paces from another pet store selling aquarium supplies and live exotic aquatics. Ladies and gentlemen, we are absolutely 100% nuts when it comes to us, we human animals, and the way we deal with them, the other non-human animals. And seven years later, here we are. So just what are we going to explore here? Well, let's start by a few things we won't, or at least what we'll try to avoid. I really want to avoid labels and absolutes. I'd much rather talk about what people do, their choices, and their motivations than what they're called. So here are some of the labels I'm going to try particularly hard to avoid. Vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian, ovo-vegetarian, ovo-lacto-vegetarian, flexitarian, carnivore, liberal, conservative, moderate, genius, fool, schlemiel, schlamazel. Because, of course, you can never have schlemiel without schlamazel. I'll try to avoid these labels because I think all they do is let other people off the hook, ooh, an animal reference, in terms of working to understand each other as individuals. The truth is, most of us do things and make choices and take actions that cross all those categories we think safely puts us in one of those label buckets. We're inconsistent. Own it. We're going to talk about people, which might seem like a weird focus for a show that calls itself the other animals, but like I said, people are animals, just human animals. Oh yes, humans are certainly unique animals. We write symphonies and go to the moon. But we're terrible at echolocation and are pretty much wholly dependent on technology to survive. So while we have unique abilities, so do the other animals. We're going to try to figure out what we humans ought to do about that. So who am I to talk about all this? Well, I'd like to tell you that I'm an anthrozoologist, complete with a Master of Science in that field. But then, that'd be a label, wouldn't it? So instead, I'll tell you that I study anthrozoology. 
a fancy word for human-animal-ology. And it's no accident that the human, the anthro, comes first. Not just because zooanthropology sounds really weird. It's because what this field is really interested in, or at least what I'm really interested in, is the half that is so incredibly inconsistent, the half that defies labeling, the anthro, the human, us. Nope, this won't be a radio version of Wild Kingdom or Jacques Cousteau for our older listeners, or Animal Planet for our younger listeners. No exotic jungle exploits or marveling at alligator behavior or the voyeuristic thrill of the lion taking down the gazelle, as fascinating as all that is. That'd be zoology, and I'm not a zoologist, not because that's label, but because I really do have a hard time keeping my lagomorphs separate from my ungulates. And besides, all that is much better on TV rather than radio. So why radio after all? Because listening to the other animals on WWDB will require you to fill in the imagery of whatever we might be talking about using your own imagination and experiences. If we're talking about something gross, like say a pile of brains, we can't gross you out with gross images, so you don't have to look away. And if we're talking about something remarkably heartwarming, you can feel it however you like. No canned images necessary. Finally, we're going to have an absolutely extraordinary group of guests, writers and thinkers and activists and volunteers, and hopefully even an elected official or two, absolute leaders in their field, that I hope you find as fascinating as I do. And you'll always be welcome to call in with your question. So, let's get going. Each week, I'm going to bring you up to date with the latest news from the other animals. So here's what we have for the week ending April 26th. 2019. In Hartford, Connecticut this week, arguments were heard before the state appellate court in the matter of Beulah, Karen, and Minnie, three elephants who have been confined since the mid-1980s by a roadside zoo. The petitioner, the Non-Human Rights Project, is seeking to have the elephants released into the custody of a dedicated elephant sanctuary. What makes the case so extraordinary is that the Non-Human Rights Project, or NHRP, is seeking to achieve this release via means of habeas corpus, which implies granting rights, personhood rights, to the elephants. It's not the first time NHRP has sought habeas corpus, and it has even achieved limited success in New York State in a similar case involving two chimpanzees, Hercules and Leo. The original case was filed in November of 2017, and the lower courts dismissed it on grounds of standing, the lead judge declaring the suit frivolous. Monday's arguments before the appellate court sought to reverse that ruling, seeking for all intents and purposes an opportunity for NHRP to have its day in court. I attended the hearing on Monday and can tell you that it was utterly fascinating. While I anticipated the proceedings to be mostly technical and legal, the three appellate judges actually wanted to argue the merits of personhood and rights for the elephants right there and then. Stephen Wise, the founder of NHRP, an attorney who argued the case was absolutely brilliant and responded to all the questions and challenges, but always brought it back to, we'd love to have this argument in open court if you'll let us. A decision on the case is expected within a few months, and we'll be following the case very closely. Meanwhile, I'm very happy to announce that Mr. Wise will be joining us here on The Other Animals on our May 24th show, so you won't want to miss that. Here in our own backyard, the Pennsylvania House of Representatives passed legislation that finally fills the long-standing vacancy of official state amphibian. In a rare display of bipartisanship, 
The House voted 191 to 6 for the winner and new state amphibian, the snot otter. According to NPR, the snot otter, or the hellbender, is a nocturnal salamander that can grow more than two feet long. The mud-colored creature, covered in a layer of mucus, breathes primarily through loose flaps of thick, wrinkled skin that look a little bit like lasagna noodles. The hellbender is also a canary for environmental degradation. The giant salamander's sensitivity to pollution and changing conditions makes it an indicator species for healthy bodies of water, according to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Its numbers have been in decline in recent years and is even on the endangered species list in several states. Since I am a dad, I just have to say, it may seem clear to you how this declaration will help with those numbers, but to me, it's not. We're wrapping up Passover this weekend and celebrated Easter last Sunday. When we come back, we'll talk with our first guest who will help us explore how religious traditions have shaped our attitudes to the other animals. Don't go away. Your pets don't like getting in cages and cars to go to the vet any more than you like sitting in a waiting room. Why not remove the stress for both of you? Have all pets house calls with me, Dr. Tom Picard. Come take care of your pets from the comfort of their own couch. We do checkups and exams for illnesses, problems, shots, and much more. Monday through Saturday appointments throughout far and wide areas of Philadelphia and surrounding suburbs. Please call us at 215-843-1780 or please feel free to submit questions so I can answer them on the air for you. Contact us by email at allpetshousecalls at comcast.net or visit our website at allpetshousecallsvet.com. Packers. Vikings. Red State. Blue State. We come from different places. Uptown. Downtown. We come to different conclusions. Half empty. Half full. But no matter how different we are, we're all connected, and we can all make a difference. That's why United Way brings people, expertise, and resources together to improve the education, income, and health of our communities, the building blocks for a better life. When we live united, our efforts, magnified by others, add up to real change. Children succeed in school, families gain financial stability, the health of our neighbors improves, and suddenly, so do our communities. But real change won't happen without you. Live Live united. So let's look beyond our differences. Live Live united. One by one, let's make a difference. Let's reach out a hand to one and influence the condition of all. (laughs) Live united. (laughs) Give, advocate, volunteer. Live United. Sign up today at liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Welcome back. Our first ever guest on the Other Animals is Professor Paul Wildow, former director of the graduate program in anthrozoology at Canisius College in Buffalo and current lecturer in animal-human divide courses at Harvard. He holds a PhD from Oxford and a JD from UCLA. Yes, he was an attorney in his previous life. And an MA in religious studies from Stanford. He is the author or editor of numerous books on animal-related topics relating to ethics, law, rights, and religion, two of which, The Specter of Speciesism, Buddhist and Christian Views of Animals, and A Communion of Subjects, Animals and Religion, Science and Ethics, will be of particular interest to us today. In addition to all that, he was my advisor and professor in my own graduate endeavors in this field. Paul, welcome to The Other Animals. Lauren, thank you so much for having me. It's really a privilege to be uh, in this program. And thank you for starting this. This is the sort of the 
uh, program that's desperately needed for people to come up the learning curve. Good. I appreciate that. I hope we, I hope we have. Uh, I hope it's informative and and, uh, and interesting, and, and <clears throat> we have a little fun in, in the way. So along those lines, so let's. I was thinking that the very first question ever on the on the program might be kind of uh, silly, but maybe not. How on earth did we get as the symbol of Easter a bunny? <laughs> you know, I have a German last name, um, and many people listening will as well. It's a German tradition. It's become the major commercial image in the United States in the last 200 years. It came over in the 1700s. Um, it's not universal by any means. In Switzerland, they use the cuckoo rather than the bunny. So it is a, an example of how a religious uh, holiday can have a commercial uh, sort of standard symbol. But symbols are important in many different ways. So it's something I think that is a sort of soft uh, opening, as it were, to the issue of Easter, which is a, obviously a deeply moving religious occasion. So the, it's it's welcome in that sense, but it's not particularly religious. So it's it's sort of an appropriation of, of, of sorts? You say, well, something just to kind of get your foot in the door? Yeah, it was a folk sort of image. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, so many Germans came over at a certain point, but of course, many Irish and French and um, others came as well. Um, but it's uh, like the notion of Christmas and um, and uh, the Christmas tree, well, mm -hmm. also German um, tradition. So it's something that comes with our very complex background in the United States and now has a kind of its independent life as a commercial reality. Okay. So I was wondering, as I was putting this together, we were thinking how, you know, this, it's such a broad subject, our, our religious faiths, our religious traditions, and, and how they, uh, what they how they impact us and, and what their influence is. And I'm trying to figure out a way to, to frame it. And then I, I came across uh, you, your excellent introduction in, um, in a communion of subjects. And I'll just read it if you can, because I, th I think it will help us set up the, um, set up the discussion. Um, the question is basically, how have religious traditions and their believers engaged other animals? Have they promoted or prevented obvious harms to the nearby biological individuals outside human communities or have they ignored them altogether? And I, I think that makes a, a really good framework to, to sort of go through. So, you know, we started with, with you know, with the Easter bunny. But how, how does, since we're coming, uh, since we just had Easter last week, I thought we'd start with, with you know, obviously likely the most influential religion in, here in the West, at least, Christianity. How does it, uh, Christianity uh, stand up to that? What's its history? I mean, it's so broad and vast, but um, if you had to, Kind of begin to, to drill down into Christianity in terms of you know the concept of uh, being harmful or ignoring or being helpful. Uh, where where would we start with that? Well, Christianity is the largest tradition in terms of numbers, two billion plus people around the world. The second largest is its cousin, Abrahamic tradition, Islam, with about one point six billion. But if you take those two together, that's about half the people in the world, so everybody's in something of a minority when it comes to a religious tradition as a background. Now, Christianity, like all of the very large traditions, uh, the other Abrahamic traditions, the Indian subcontinent traditions, the Chinese traditions, is really mixed. You can find any view you want in Christianity. Think of Francis of Assisi, but in early Christianity around the uh, 4th century, 5th century, uh, one of the really seminal figures, Augustine, uh, bought into a line of argument from the Greeks, the Stoics, that said humans were basically above 
all the other animals because of language and our rationality. But there are many Christians today, for example, Eastern, uh, some of the Eastern Orthodox traditions are quite intent on the sacredness, even the sacramental character of other living beings and of the natural world. And there are a whole group, uh, big swaths of Christianity, which are quite dismissive of such claims. So internally, Christianity is diverse. Um, it is commonly associated with distance, distancing ourselves from other animals. But again, there are many, many individuals inside of any one of the major Abrahamic traditions who, as Jeff will explain later, who have, who have uh, very much seen that these are creatures of the Creator and therefore deserving of respect from us who uh, also considered creatures when, of the Creator. When there's a, a declaration like that by a leader, like in that, <clears throat> excuse me, you said uh, Augustine, for example, who, who declared essentially that only humans were rational. And then you have later on, you have Pope Pius IX that really humankind has no duties to animals. When there's a declaration like that, what, is the effect, um, is that taken to heart by the lay people, by the, you know, the, the, the rank and file, the, those in the pews? Or is it, uh, what is the actual effect of a declaration like that? Is it, it, does it do anything or is it kind of just verbiage? No, it's more than mere verbiage. Uh, the position that Pope Pius IX took uh, shows up in the Catholic Catechism, which for the first time in many hundreds of years was revised in 1994, I think it was. And it shows that up there. But remember, most people don't know that position. Far more people would know St. Francis of Assisi, who not only um, cared about other animals, but preached to them. We would also know in Christianity, for example, Albert Schweitzer, Reverence for Life, an incredibly high-profile figure in the early 20th century. And then if somebody comes from one of the more conservative contemporary Christian circles, like certain evangelical circles, they have an icon named C.S. Lewis, in his writing, although very much known for fictional matters, has some of the most penetratingly um, helpful observations about why we should protect um, other living beings besides the humans. Of course, humans matter immensely, but for C.S. Lewis, so did the other animals. So those are three examples that are better known than the, the um, promulgations that come from the Pope. The Pope promulgations can make a big difference, but again, I don't think anything ever controverts the basic fact that Christianity is extremely mixed. If you want to go one way, you can find support. If you want to go the other way, you can find just as much support. Yeah, which leads me to what, what I was thinking, is that if if I have a predilection as an individual to either be, you know, towards animals, to either be kind or or be treat them as, as not rational, am I going to find the theology that fit, that already fits that predisposition, or am I going to be influenced by what the leaders uh, try to tell me about it, you know, by interpretation of Scripture or, or uh, writ or um, in declaration of some kind? It's, it's going to be, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find what suits me. That's kind of what you're saying, right? And, and to the point even where I may find at the community level, I may find churches that are, are, in, you know, are individual uh, organizations within my my uh, my religious tradition that fit my my predetermined leanings. Is that? Yeah, it, the the actual official theology of the Catholic Church, for example, is one kind of theology. There are many other theologians who today it's particularly active in a field called religion and animals, who 
insist that theology must countenance the um, sacredness of all uh, creation, all living beings, the environment. So you can cherry-pick what you wish. Mm -hmm. The very fact that that's possible is a reflection of something that I think is really the ground zero of religious attitudes towards other living beings. When you go local, if you go to a local church, how do the people actually act towards their non-human neighbors? That's the telling thing. Whether or not somebody uh, repeats some figure's theology or not is, I suppose, important in ways, but what really matters, as someone said, the act will speak unerringly. How you treat the local wildlife, what you eat, what you teach your children in terms of respecting other living beings. I think, in many ways, the messages inside the Abrahamic tradition are often quite positive that way, even though the official theology sounds like we're dismissing our own animality Mm -hmm. and saying humans alone are really the apple of God's eye, if I could say it that way. Mm -hmm. But the truth of the matter is the -the on-the-ground realities are often extremely complex, and it's always important to look at the local phenomena. Okay. So let, let's move along. Let's, let's do a little bit of a survey here. Um, so we talked about Christianity as maybe representative of one of the major uh, Abrahamic traditions. Let's move east a little bit and um, let's look at Buddhism. I know that's, that's an area of, of particular specialty for you. So uh, uh, Buddhism and perhaps comparable to, to Hindu, there, there are, there are uh, some overlaps there. But um, there is a, a, a definite emphasis on compassion. Is that, is that correct with Buddhism? And particularly, yes, it's absolutely foregrounded that your task is to be a caring living being and take responsibility for your actions. So um, there's the concept that the belief that any being born beneath the human realm is perceived um, negatively, though, right? So that's sort of the undertone that you have to work your way up. Yes, although one important qualification. Um, it's true that if, if a living being was seen as a, was another animal, that the Buddhists would say, oh, it still has a lot of lives to live to come into the human frame. But watch. In the Buddhist tradition, it was also the case that if you were a woman, you had to move up womankind, and then you got to be the queen, and then when you were a successful queen, you got to be reborn again in a better place. You became the lowliest man, the poorest the most crippled, and then you had to work your way up. Wait, wait, wait. So, so, so the, the woman, if it was a, like a continuum, so that the highest, once she achieved, the highest woman, the queen woman, was still below the lowest man? Is, is, yes, in oh the my. reincarnation scheme. So you realize, <laughs> okay, so there's, a, there's a, a cutting edge to this that is not so pretty. It's true of both the Hindu and the Buddhist traditions. Here. But the point is, in their daily lives, again, their actual values are often, I was just in India, and the, you, many of the cities you travel in, you're also right by the car, right on busy highways, are, are um, cattle, and many dogs as well, and uh, people are quite respectful, um, not hitting them. It's really something to see for, for someone from our society. So yeah, so well that that's over on the the Hindu side, right? Where we have where we really get the notion of um, of reincarnation and that really achieving human status is is the paradigm of what of what biological life should be. That when, once you've once you've reached human, you've arrived. Uh, but there's interesting, you know, the, one of the themes of the show since you mentioned the the, the cattle and the cow, uh, the 
is inconsistency. And as far as wonderful as it appears that the uh, that the cattle are treated as as sacred, um, it's not. Uh, curious, since as you were there in India, did you see something uh, anything that sort of belied a, a, another truth to that, uh, a, other treatment of of animals that maybe weren't cows? Yes, there's no question that even though in a sort of formal sense cows are respected and, and, and on the street they are, as it were, but that doesn't mean they have good lives. Um, and it's a complicated thing. It, Buddhism is a, really an offshoot of Hinduism, as is the Jain tradition, both Buddhism and the Jain traditions being very significant in other animals and picking that up from the Hindu background. Um, but you're right. Lauren, it is always important to pull back the curtain in that sort of Wizard of Oz way. Mm -hmm. uh, who's behind the curtain? Mm -hmm. And the actual realities are always more complex. Both the positive and negative views need to be um, examined that way. And that's really what it means to be informed about a religious tradition is not to take the generalization, but instead say, what do the actual people in their daily lives do today, tomorrow, mm -hmm. and the next day? Mm -hmm. uh, since you mentioned Jainism, um for our listeners that may not know, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Jainism, the Jain tradition, and they have a very, very special model in terms of, of their approach to uh, animal and indeed all life, correct? Yes, they do. The, the Jain tradition is like the Buddhist tradition. It broke off from Hinduism at a certain point. It broke off in part because, as did Buddhism, they were the Buddhists and the Jains were really frustrated with the animal sacrifice going on in Hinduism and didn't want to do that, so they never participated in that. The Jains are really well known for the concept of ahimsa, ahimsa, non-harming. Originally, that was a concept in the Indian subcontinent that paid attention to animals. It eventually got moved over to humans as well, so humans benefited from that deep respect for other animals. And the Jains, although not populous, only about 20 million, but they are very influential and they have very, very heavy scholarship. They're often used as the sort of poster child for a religious tradition that can make a major commitment to not harming other lives. Vegetarianism is completely dominant in it, and many Buddhists are as well, but not all. But the point is that the Jain tradition teaches their children from the very beginning, you must respect all living beings. Buddhism is the same. In many ways, Hinduism as well. And you can see there are plenty of Christians who would do the same, but Jainism is really as, as fabulously interesting on this point as any religious tradition has ever been. They would see, some from the West would see them, uh, again, as interested in in, um, in our inconsistencies as being almost extreme, right? Am I right that Jainism will, will be sure when they step outside to not sure, make sure they're not harming bugs, right? Insects to, to yes. uh, even, and does it go down even to the uh, lower level than that? Oh, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. When you think about it, humans can only see a very small percentage of the actual living beings, so they can only go that far. Many monks will wear masks right. because they don't want to inhale an insect because they consider that um, what, what might be called a sin in uh, another religion's terminology. There are also monks who, when they sleep, carry a broom, and whenever they turn over at night, before they turn over, they, they take that broom and they sweep behind them where they're going to turn over to because they don't want any bugs to be there. And in that sense, it seems radical because we're so used to um, only protect it when we do protect certain kinds of other living beings. It's usually dogs or maybe it's wildlife. We don't usually think of insects, but in the Indian subcontinent throughout, it has always been all life is sacred. How do you respond to that very serious challenge, of course? Right. And 
one of the, uh, if, if you are into the animal world, one of the challenges you frequently get from people who are very much, for whatever reason, hostile or opposed to that is, is they, they try to draw you into the drawing the line concept. And that's, we saw that even on the, uh, the case I saw uh, last week with, uh, with the elephants. The justices were really trying to, to draw uh, Mr. Wise into where, well, where are you drawing the line, where are you drawing the line. And in the case of the Janes, that there's a draw, well, would they draw the line to plant life? Are they? Do they get sucked into that argument? Well, if you care about bugs, you know, and then there's this collective rolling of the eyes, like uh, how far are you really going to go? How, how does Jane deal with that? Well, the Janes really do talk about single, there's six levels of life, and the earliest ones are the simplest ones, and plants are certainly given consideration, but it's just a practical impossibility to not eat plants if you're going to forego eating mm-hmm. other living beings because you need something. Um, nutrients and sustenance. So in a way, the, the practical issue is that it it is not paid attention at the same level as the kinds of animals that sometimes I call macro animals. The one we can see, the ones we can see, and oh, that's an individual like that dog, mm-hmm. that horse. Um, but the truth of the matter is they do care, and that's partly because their background idea, and this also appears in every one of the Abrahamic traditions is that this is a sacred creation full of mystery created by an all-important um, creator who, who's, and this creation belongs to that creator, not to us, and so therefore it should be respected. So there is an emphasis to trying to be a good, responsible citizen of the world, not the king or the queen that gets to do anything you want, but instead is a responsible member of your local world. That's something that religion at its best everywhere tries to do, and probably everywhere fails, mm-hmm. but all of us fail at that. But the point is, religion can be a very powerful incentive for people trying to take responsibility for their actions. Yep, I'd agree with that. All right, we're talking uh, We're talking live with Paul Wildow on the other animals. If you'd like to join in the discussion, our number here in the studio is 888-329-3306. That's 888-329-3306. Uh, if you don't have access to the phone and want to email, you can send your questions to otheranimals.wwdb at gmail.com. That's otheranimals.wwdb at gmail.com. When we come back, we'll be joined in this discussion by Jeffrey Cohan of Jewish Veg. Your pets don't like getting in cages and cars to go to the vet any more than you like sitting in a waiting room. Why not remove the stress for both of you? Have all pets house calls with me, Dr. Tom Picard, come take care of your pets from the comfort of their own couch. We do checkups and exams for illnesses, problems, shots, and much more. Monday through Saturday appointments throughout far and wide areas of Philadelphia and surrounding suburbs. Please call us at 215-843-1780 or please feel free to submit questions so I can answer them on the air for you. Contact us by email at allpetshousecalls at comcast.net or visit our website at allpetshousecallsvet.com. My dad came to live with us last month, and you know, it's going pretty well. I feel like I never have time for myself. With him being around more, it really lets us catch up on things. His memory isn't what it used to be. We get up and we have coffee. He usually wakes up at 4.30. Then we go for a walk. He needs lots of my attention. I do need to keep an eye on his medications, though. That's important. Sometimes I feel like a pharmacist. I'd say John and the kids are adjusting pretty well. They honestly have no idea what I'm going through. It can be a little challenging. Help. But so far, so good. I could really use just a little help. 
For those dealing with the daily struggles of caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a community with experts and other caregivers for advice, tips, and support. Together, let's help each other better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Welcome back. Jeffrey Spitz Cohen is the executive director of Jewish Veg, an international organization which encourages and helps Jews to embrace plant-based diets as an expression of the Jewish values of compassion for animals, concern for health, and care for the environment. He's also the author of The Beet Eating Hebe. I love it. The leading blog on the theology of veganism. Prior to joining Jewish Veg, Jeffrey worked in print and broadcast journalism in four states and three Latin American countries. He earned his bachelor's degree in political science from UC Berkeley and his master's in public management from Carnegie Mellon. Jeffrey, welcome to the other animals. Ron, great to be with you. It's, um, I just wanted to echo all what you're doing is tremendous on this show. Oh, so well, it's an honor to be with you and Ma. I appreciate it. I know it's it's uh, you've just completed a sequence of very successful vegan satyrs, which I'll be asking about. So uh, for our listeners, Jeff is out in Seattle. It's the wee hours of the morning for him, so I, I definitely appreciate um, waking up the crack of dawn to, to join us for this. <laughs> so, um, Jeff, so you, uh, I presume you were able to listen to the first segment, and Paul talking about, uh, we, we discussed some of the um, concept of the edicts. You have you know, Augustine and St. Francis and Schweitzer and in the example of Christianity, where we have these, these um, traditions— and, and sort of driven from scripture that that tend to um, you know give direction, give focus, give uh, give attitude, if you will, of how the, the overall faith uh, is going to view it, its approach to, to animals. And in Judaism, we have um, you know we, we have the cultural aspect of it. We have um, that 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 has come from years of you know it's a vast histories. Uh, so we have our food, we have our brisket, and we have our chicken soup, and, and we have so many, many laws that seem to guide us in that. And yet, um, that's, not, that's not the essence of it. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about how Jewish veg is, uh, is taking and, and the imp- interpretation of those um, to sort of bring us back to our roots, if, if you can. Thanks. All right, um it isn't terribly complicated. It really comes down to three things, which is first, not, um, the ideal in the Torah, and there is no debate about this, is that a plant-based diet is the ideal. We see it in the very first chapter of Genesis. We see it in the book of Isaiah, when the Messianic era is being described. So that's there's no, that's a complete consensus among rabbis going back 2,000 years. The second is that we're given permission to eat meat, but that was just as a concession after the Noahide flood when Jews, um, when people were at their lowest spiritual state. So it was just as a concession, it was never what God wanted. And then the third thing, even if these two other things weren't true, is that in Judaism, in the Torah, there is a mandate to treat animals with compassion. 
and to prevent causing harm. It's called Sa'ar Ba'alei Chayim in Hebrew. And of course, Sa'ar Ba'alei Chayim is being desecrated, desecrated in modern animal agriculture. So, for these three reasons, many top rabbis support this organization, which is promoting um, a vegan lifestyle in the Jewish community, and no rabbi will debate us publicly. Interesting. So how, how would you overcome what I, I, I guess is, you'd say, the inertia? The inertia of, of however many thousands of years of that being lost, of that the, those three primary you know, principles, those concepts of... Uh, you know, of compassion, I guess, uh, being lost to, to the culture where we have, you know, they, they would, uh, people who have been weaned on chicken soup and weaned on their brisket and, uh, and all, all the, the traditions that go with it, that is so embedded within the culture that if you propose what you're proposing, even though it's a, it's a return to roots, you get a collective rolling of the eyes, you are Meshuggana, you are nuts. Get this. Get this. You know, crazy person away from me. Uh, I, I even had one person uh, refer to that as um, uh, crazy granola type. Uh, and so, how do you, how do you overcome that kind of, of resistance to something that is actually the root of the faith? Well, when you say it's on the root, um, the reality is this. That for the vast majority of history, Jews ate very little meat, and people in general ate very little meat. So it wasn't so much of an issue. You were lucky if you could eat meat on the Sabbath once a week. Because the laws of cash root, which dictate what type of meat you can eat and how the Amulus Guild are so restrictive, there was never much of a supply of kosher meat. It was difficult to do. So this only changed actually within the last hundred years with the industrialization of the kosher meat production. When that happened, kosher meat became readily available, and that caused a big paradigm shift. Mm -hmm. But in terms of Jewish history, this is a very recent development. Mm -hmm. So if you have, if you have, for example, again, just come back to uh, we were just maybe you could talk a little bit about the success of the uh, of the vegan seders, but you have, for example, that tradition that is so baked in, and you, even with the symbolism on the on the seder plate, where we have you know the shank bone and the egg and the and the <coughs> lamb's blood, and the, the you know the lamb's blood is it's part of uh, it's there, you know, it's an exodus, and and. Uh, how do you how do you turn that around? If if you how do you answer the argument? Well, it's right there. It's right there in Shemot. You know, I mean, you're, you you've got to you can't just cherry pick it and extract it, Jeff. I mean, come on, mm -hmm. right? What, what do you say to someone like that? Right. Well, this is um, how um, the rabbis interpret the Passover story, which is the reason um, the lambs were killed is because the Egyptians worshipped lambs. Because they worship lambs, um, the Israelites killed the lambs to mock the Egyptian gods. And to show that these aren't gods, look, we just killed them. So, I admit, it's not the most animal-friendly story, 
but it isn't based on what, something that's supposed to be a um, continued permanent Jewish practice. It was based on a particular historical circumstance. So, uh, so tell us, uh, tell to our audience about how the what your penetration, what your success has been. I mean, the the, the vegan seders, for example. Um, is that message getting through? Do you think? Are, are we uh, are we getting there? Yeah, like I said, um, it is so true. I don't say this um, out of arrogance, or I don't say this um, to brag. But the fact is this: no rabbi will debate us publicly on these issues because they know that the Torah and our rabbinic tradition is actually on the side of not killing animals for food. There have been leading rabbis talking about this for at least a thousand years. I'm talking about some of the most prominent rabbis in each generation, including ours today. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have just a few minutes left, and I was hoping to actually get uh, uh, bring Paul back into the conversation. You know, there, are, there are two themes that seem to stretch, that seem to encompass all religious faiths, not just uh, Judaism, but and not just the Abrahamic ones, but um, but all, all religions vis-a-vis their animals. And one is the concept of mercy, and the other is the concept of dominion. And uh, dominion has the, the, you know, this, this thought of that somehow we are, we are the caretakers, uh, for better or for worse. And if it's for the worst, then we have this, we, and we alone appear to have this capability to show mercy. Th- those two concepts are, are imbued in, in many religious faiths. And uh, I'm just curious to kind of hear your take on that, and how, how, for example, do do you see that as as crossing platforms? Um, Paul, do you, do you? Uh, well, first of all, let me refer to Jeff's comments. Jeff, it's such a beautiful thing to hear the energy and the integrity and the deep commitment to going back to the roots. Um, every tradition has those roots. Um, many traditions have moved away from them. But the way you articulate it, you can see how much Judaism has contributed to the overall debate. It's the fountainhead, the sort of headwaters of Christianity and Islam, and it has it stands with any other tradition in terms of that, that deep commitment to mercy. And in, in many ways in the Western tradition, kept alive through the Sarbal, Haim, uh, the, the, the tradition of non-cruelty that is so important to us, but obviously we've subordinated that. I think religion has been a vehicle for the good here. Of course, as a power, it also can be used to destroy things, and sometimes that's been happening as well. But it's gratifying, Jeff, to hear how, frankly, you... Is it not good that we're all in a country where we can speak that freely? Say, let's go back to traditions. Others can disagree. We should all be listening well to each other. In the current situation, there is a lot of discussion about humans' relationship to the other living beings that suggests we are open to this, even though we have lost it as a mainline value, at least in our public policy in most of the industrialized countries. Jeff, do you, do you see... Uh, Thanks, Bob. Yeah. Jeff, do you see th- that uh, within what you're trying to do in terms of mercy and dominion and how that how that folds into, into the mission of, of what Jewish Veg is trying to accomplish? No, I'm so pleased that um, you brought up Dominion because I think, um, I can't speak for Paul, but he might agree, it is the most misunderstood, the most misinterpreted verse in the entire Bible. 
I don't, even, I don't even know if there's a close second, hmm. because the Dominion verse is actually part of the same conversation, only three verses away, where we're told to consume a plant-based diet and not kill animals for food. So very clearly, Dominion was not meant to give us license to kill animals for food. In fact, just the opposite. The actual word in Hebrew is your due. And the actual Torah is your due, which connotes kingship. And in the biblical sense, a king's first job is to care for the marginalized, the widow, the orphan. And in our society, nobody is more marginalized than animals. So dominion, the actual original meaning of it, has been turned upside down. We're supposed to care for the animals. That's the power that God gave the human beings. And, and it's been perverted. And I couldn't have said it, uh, but that's uh, beautiful. Lauren, can I add something quickly? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, in the really developed thinking of those people who have looked at long and hard at the Jewish traditions, at the Christian traditions, at the Islamic traditions, there's a very developed discussion about, instead of using the word dominion, which conveys dominance, the preferred word often is stewardship. Mm. Because what Jeff mentioned, the king's role was one of stewardship over the king's people. And what does it mean to be a steward other than to take care and to see um, the advantage, not for oneself, but in, in a more communal way? And that is another example of how the Abrahamic traditions, beginning with the deep roots of um, the Jewish tradition, carrying into Christianity and Islam, all have easily within reach a notion of we can be the most important special animals by actually transcending our self-interest and self-actualizing by becoming communal and protecting a really wide range of the community. Great. Th thanks, Paul. Uh, I want to thank both Paul Waldau and Jeff Cohen, our first guests on the, on the other animals. Um, when we come back, you will get to meet Philadelphia's favorite veterinarian, Dr. Thomas Picard, where you can ask the vet. Your pets don't like getting in cages and cars to go to the vet any more than you like sitting in a waiting room. Why not remove the stress for both of you? Have all pets house calls with me, Dr. Tom Picard, come take care of your pets from the comfort of their own couch. We do checkups and exams for illnesses, problems, shots, and much more. Monday through Saturday appointments throughout far and wide areas of Philadelphia and surrounding suburbs. Please call us at 215-843-1780 or please feel free to submit questions so I can answer them on the air for you. Contact us by email at allpetshousecalls at comcast.net or visit our website at allpetshousecallsvet.com. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? 
Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. We think our vet is Welcome back to the other animals. One quick uh, order of business here. Uh, announcement. The third annual Peaceable Kingdom Conference will be held at Bucks County Community College on Sunday, May 4th. Starts at 8.30 in the morning for uh, the Peaceable Kingdom Conference. Uh, goals are to respect animals' emotions and intelligence, increase our reliance on plant-based foods, be kind to Earth, its inhabitants, and ourselves. For more information, visit the Peaceable Kingdom Conference Facebook page at facebook.com slash Peaceable Kingdom Conference. When I was growing up, if you asked pretty much any kid what they wanted to be when they grow up, they'd say either a police officer, a firefighter, or a veterinarian. Obviously, only very few of us ever made it all the way, but I'm very happy to introduce one who did, Philadelphia's favorite veterinary, Dr. Thomas Picard. Welcome, Tom. Good morning. So, Tell me about your adventure. How, how did you get into veterinaries? What, what, did you have that experience when you were a kid? It was something you always wanted to do? Uh, pretty much. Uh, I guess like a lot of vets, <clears throat> I grew up around a lot of animals. Uh, our, my parents got a dog when the year I was born, so we grew up together. And um, probably one of the second pets we had was uh, my dad for Easter brought home some ducklings. They were the American Pekin ducks, the ones that grow up big white ones. Well, that was uh, doomed to fail, though, because our dog was a Chesapeake Bay Retriever, and they're duck hunting dogs. <laughs> so she was always trying to kill the ducks. But as <laughs> luck would have it, uh, my grandfather had a small farm in upstate Pennsylvania, and uh, he had tons of animals there. I always used to go with him to the farm when we would visit, and uh, he'd get me up at 3 or 4 in the morning, and we'd drive like an hour or two to the farm, and I'd just help him with the animals all day. And that was Definitely one of my favorite places to go. I, he had, you know, a couple of horses, a couple of, you know, cattle, pigs, donkey, chickens, sheep, you name it. And uh, yeah, it was just I got, I grew up taking care of animals. So when the when the when was it the, the dog that attacked the duck? Uh, she never quite got them, but oh. that we took them to the farms because she was eventually well, going did, to get them. Did, did you try to uh, did you try to intervene, or were you were you already healing the ducks? At, uh, at that she, point? Uh, I intervened a lot, and then I, my parents decided it was time to get rid of them before there was a major you know, catastrophe with them. <laughs> so, so, so did you? Uh, so, all right. So we had that. Now something had to go to the next step to actually say, "All right." I'll, I'll well, go. then our dog Amber, the Chesapeake Bay Retriever, uh, had a litter of puppies. Ton, ton of them. I can't remember exactly, probably 10 or more. And uh, of course, we would take them to the local vet to get checkups and shots and all. And I thought, you know, and watching this, like, what a great job. This guy gets to just play with puppies and dogs and kittens and stuff all day. And, you know, I thought that's when it, I guess the seed was planted in my mind at that point. So then you, you, uh, was you went to med, you went to vet school or was there? A- well, for, uh, first I you know went to uh, in biology that was at my undergrad and then uh, then I was uh, 
work with some vets because it's good to get experience working with them before you get accepted at vet schools and you don't want to get accepted and then decide you don't like it. Uh, so I did that. And uh, once I was in vet school, uh, you know, it was, it was just fascinating. You know, I was always fascinated by the biology that I studied and the physiology and uh, you know, to be able to figure out what's wrong with an animal that can't talk to you, obviously, and they can't tell you what's going on. Right. So it's kind of a mystery. And it's I like the science of it. And I like, you know, just being around the animals, too. It's instant reward. So um, we're, we're talking with uh, Dr. Thomas Picard. Ask the vet if you have a question for uh, that you'd like to ask Dr. Picard about your dog, cat, or other animal. Our number here is 888-329-3306. That's 888-329-3306. Zero sticks, uh, zero six. So you started the. Um, uh, you were you were part of a veterinary practice uh, for a while. And- I did. Uh, I thought originally uh, when I was in school, one of my uh, uh, jobs that you, you go you go and do these different uh, rotations uh, was working for a vet up in New York. And uh, one of the more interesting ones was uh, uh, Pelham Park Zoo was uh, a zoo that's now closed, and uh, they were moving all the animals. So. He was the main vet at the zoo, so for a couple of weeks we went with him and helped empty out the zoo of all the animals. So I thought that was pretty interesting. In fact, a funny brief story from there that I didn't tell him. Uh, since I was allowed to go anywhere I wanted in the zoo, I'm like, I'm going to the lion house and I'm going to go where you're not allowed to go, which is down behind the barriers. And uh, so I went and there's a lioness up on a shelf in her, in her cage. And I just thought, I want to see what it's like to have a lion attack you or what it looks like. So I just started having a staring contest with her, and she—I could tell she was getting agitated. I could see her tail twitching, and she was ready. And I Wait, thought, "This is you going mono, one-on-one with the with the lion." It was just the bars between us, and I backed up just enough. I knew she was because she could get her her paws outside the the bars, and I knew as soon as I turned my back, that's when she was going to pounce. So I turned my back, and then I quickly looked around, and she charged, and she wanted to kill me. Her she was trying to reach through that cage to get me and I still jumped back even though I was like you know far enough away but I was like wow this is pretty exciting <laughs> oh my God. Oh, what, a, what a wow <laughs> did so what wh- how did you get from that from working at the zoo and, and working perhaps with the practice to your own business and well I did work with a vet for uh, my first year out uh, just just regular dog cat practice basically although I, I i did see some other animals on the sides as well then uh, after a year i decided i just wanted to go out on my own uh there had been a woman who lectured on our very first day of uh vet school and she was a house call vet in philadelphia so i that kept that in the back of my mind and i decided yeah i just want to go out on my own i don't want to save up to buy a hospital or mm-hmm. that sort of thing so just started advertising, trying to you know see uh, see animals in the home, and uh, I saw everything. I still do, you know, reptiles, birds, dogs, cats, you know, everything, rabbits, you name it. So your business, though, what's unique about all pets house calls is you you make house calls. Uh, I don't know of any other certainly not up where I live in Bucks County. I don't know of any any practice that does that. Um, uh, that that's a unique. That's a unique, and we, you know, we have our, our your our theme song that that talks about that. But I think that that's really viable, right? That that animals. I know when I have to take my cats to the vet, uh, we're lucky if it's not a blood fest with with arms and scratches and and the drama and and it's it's always no matter what you try and do, it's it's real drama. It's real trauma for the, for a lot of 
particularly cats, but I assume it's not a picnic for dogs either. So coming to the house is, is um, there's something, there is a real benefit to that, right? I, I assume there's a lot of animals who probably don't get veterinary care because it's such a difficult thing to get some of them into your car, into a cage, cats particularly. Uh, so I, and I think they're generally a lot happier in their home, obviously. And uh, for the most part, that does play to my advantage because they don't really know I'm a vet for most of the time until I start, you know, maybe poking and prodding and doing some things. But for the most part, in their own home, they're they're definitely more relaxed than in an office. Are, are you? I presume there's some restrictions to some procedures that you can't do at the home. I mean, there's there must be some surgical procedure where you have, the animals have to come into the into the office? Uh, yes, I, I do. Uh, I, anymore, I don't do as much as I used to be, like big dogs and things like that. I'm just alone, so it's you know getting older, so it's a little tough to carry them up and down stairs and things like that under anesthesia. But uh, yeah, I definitely for still, you know, do some, you know neuters and some other procedures, tum- tumor removals and some things like that, sure. At the home? Or- uh, no, no, no I, I bring them with me. They're overnight with me one night, typically. Okay. Back the next day. All right. Well, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Tom's going to be our, our partner. We'll be able to talk to him every week. Uh, so like I say, if you do have questions, if anything you'd like to know about your dog or cat or more about his business, just always feel free to call on the show or go to uh, allpetshousecalls.com, right? Uh, it's allpetshousecallsvet.com. All <laughs> the other one was taken. All right. So that, uh, I believe, is concludes our our first, I like to think, successful uh, episode of All the Other Animals. I'd like to thank our guests, Paul Wildow and Jeffrey Spitz-Cohan. Special thanks to Jason Duffy, our engineer. And by all means, feel free to check out the website, theotheranimals.com, for a downloadable podcast of today's shows. If you have any ideas or suggestions for future guests or subject, please feel free to email me at otheranimals.wwdb at gmail.com. And by all means, if you'd like to advertise on the, uh, on the Other Animals, Check out the website, theotheranimals.com. Next week, they bring out the best of us, animal heroes. Our guests will include Clarissa Black of Pets for Vets, Kristen Peralta of Vintage Pet Rescue, and Michael Fiorini of Pilots and Paws. We'll see you then. Thanks a lot, everyone.